But I said, no, we're going to do printmaking because printmaking is collaborative. It's an easy medium to teach, and it has processes that you must follow. Hello, print friends, and welcome to the 98th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and you can find it all at pinecopperlime.com. Print friends, this is probably where you're used to me talking about our Patreon. However, I think today I'd like to talk about something a little different. Transcripts. Transcripts of Pine Copper Lime from our archive of nearly 100 episodes. You've asked for them, we've wanted to be able to give them, but to be honest, we just haven't had that cash in hand to do so. So we're turning to you in celebration of the upcoming 100th episode, to ask for help in making this happen. We've set up a fundraiser so we can get the money together, and that money will go towards an automated transcription service, as well as an intern we have lined up to clean up the text that the robot gives us. So please check out the link in the show notes, and let's all help make Pine Copper Lime a bit more accessible to printmakers around the world. It's a pretty modest goal, so even a buck or two really will go a long way towards making it happen. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. This episode of Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. If you've been following along on Instagram, and we really recommend that you do, you've no doubt seen their newest initiative in the print world, Speedball's Print Posse. Working with incredible artists like Jay Ryan and Lily Arnold, they've created a brand new line of custom printing inks and additives to push your practice even further. So head on over to Speedball's Print Posse shop at speedballart.com and find out where you can pick up a can of your new favorite color. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Alan Edmonds, founder and director of Brandywine Workshop and Archives in Philadelphia. We'll talk about the driving force behind the workshop from the beginning, being a citizen of the world, and creating a database as a research tool. Ellen also gives fantastic advice about nonprofits and how to decide if this is the right path for you. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to do something bigger than yourself with Alan Edmonds. Hi, Alan. How's it going? Pretty good. Nice to meet you, Miranda. Nice to meet you. Thank you for joining me on a morning in Philadelphia. I'm really excited to get to know you a little bit better and get to know Brandywine with you. So I always start my interviews by asking my guests to just give a little brief introduction of themselves. And I Mm -hmm. ask them to answer who you are, where you are, what you do. Well, Miranda, I'm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the town or city where I grew up and have maintained uh, three uh, independent professional pursuits at the same time. I always wanted to be an educator. Mm. And uh, in high school, I was inspired by 
an art teacher who helped me choose the subject that I would teach. But education was always primary. I, I knew I wanted a profession in that. So then the subject became art. And then early success, uh, I'll say this, that when I graduated uh, undergraduate school, I went to Temple University Tyler School of Art, which is also in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. I was in an exhibition at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and my artwork was hanging next to the venerable artist Robert Rauschenberg, mm. a major mm -hmm. 20th century artist. That's pretty amazing for a kid from a predominantly African-American community that had probably no professionals in fine arts and fine visual arts. So it was stunning. It was, it was a, a great moment, but I saw it as a moment because my commitment was still to educate and be active in my community, uh, particularly, you know, things that I had seen and inspired by, by the civil rights movement and the uh, Vietnam War protests and things like that. So I wanted to be active, and I saw it through the lens of education. But this moment that I had where I had an opportunity to pursue a fairly successful career as a visual artist, I looked at it as the moment and a moment of opportunity to take what was given me or provided me to use that as leverage to do something bigger than myself. Within the first year of graduation, I founded Brandywine Workshop and Archives. It was a neighborhood-based workshop, had hardly any, had hardly any equipment, really. I mean, most things were handmade. And uh, had some volunteers, some artists that were teaching in the public school system and a few artists that were teaching at the college level at Temple and other colleges around the area. And then I had some, some talented visual artists. And we all came together to try to do something bigger than ourselves. We looked at ourselves as among the successful ones working in the, in the fine arts field because we had jobs. You know, at, at that time, I also started teaching for the school district of Philadelphia at the high school level. So we had jobs working in a field that we loved and a profession we chose. We then decided that, you know, we needed to incorporate. So we became a nonprofit because as an incorporated nonprofit, we could apply for grants and things. And certainly we needed to do that because even though we had jobs, we weren't wealthy, we weren't patrons, you know, we, we had, that's why we volunteered, you know, somebody paid the rent, somebody paid the phone bill, but we couldn't do much more than that. So it was necessary to get incorporated. We did that. And then we started raising grants and so forth and evolved to where we're at today, almost 50 years later. But I've been blessed because early on I met my wife and she was as committed as I was to working within the community, being a social and, and community activist. And uh, she also was in the arts. Mm. Her name was Anne. And I ended up marrying that woman. <laughs> and uh, we've had a f almost 50-year marriage that coincides or runs parallel to my career in the fine arts. So, but I never stopped creating my work because I always thought as a teacher, you were a better teacher if you did the art that you taught. Mm -hmm. If you mm -hmm. teach writing and you don't write and try to get published and, and try to raise your writing, continuously develop it, and raise it to a high professional level, you'd probably be less of a teacher. And that's what I learned from the people that mentored me when I was in high school. They were very passionate about the subject that they taught, 
and they were very professional and committed to their teaching to the to the improvement and, and advancement of the students. So Brandywine kind of brings everything together for me. You know, I've continued to do my art. I've won national grants as well as state grants. I'm in several collections. And I look at all that as it's, I mean, this sounds presumptuous, but I always hoped I could be a role model for other people, okay? I mean, so when I taught, I tried to conduct myself as a role model, somebody that kids could look up to, somebody that was passionate about what they were teaching, and somebody that practiced what they taught outside of the the classroom. So uh, I've pursued education, I pursued fine arts as a studio artist, and I pursued administration, arts administration, and made myself, I think, a, a very good administrator. In fact, I've consulted nationally on organizational development and so forth. So I've had success in all three areas, and I think it's because of the support that I've had from my wife, two wonderful daughters, now grown, and always being provided what I needed when I needed it, because nobody does anything alone. Mm -hmm. And I've had board members, I've had artists. It comes from art educators, comes from art historians, curators, collectors, and then the people that we've hired, the people that have come on staff. I like to think that everybody that comes to work for Brandywine leaves Brandywine more advanced in whatever area they ultimately want to pursue, because we have operate we we've been always diversity driven so as an organization founded by african americans our first students were were latina mm. you know we we started the brandywine workshop started on brandywine street in a latina community in north philadelphia so we've always had that mix and we always intentionally went for like right now everybody talks about inclusion, diversity, and equity, that, that is the definition of what Brandywine has been from day one. Mm -hmm. We're the model. I don't see any other institution in the country and in the United States that can match what we've done. And I think the, the database, we have an online database of contemporary diverse uh, art that's been produced at Brandywine. And then background of those artists uh, and descriptions of the artwork describing the inspirations, be they purely aesthetic or they be social or political. I think that in most cases, artists of color, Latinx, black and Asian artists in America have a narrative. They're the marginalized population and opportunities open up slowly. Uh, something dramatic has to happen like the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, you know, the bomb in the World Trade Center sparked an interest in understanding Islam where Islamic organizations weren't being funded. You know, uh, people in the Asian-American community that I know tended, decades ago, tended to shy away from politics. Now they understand that politics engagement in communities beyond yours is very important. And I, and I go to the, the model that Brandywine works under, which is that this, you can discover the world through art. So we have artists from various countries in Latin America, the Caribbean, Asia. We even have Russian artists, you know, and people mm -hmm. get amazed by that, you know, but we have Russian, Lithuanian, Armenian, Welsh artists, French artists. From this little organization that started with nothing, these are the things that I'm most proud of. Yeah. As a little organization that started with nothing, 
but a serious commitment to do something beyond themselves. Because most groups back in the day would organize so that they could have um, like a, a cooperative gallery. You know, everybody knows they're going to get an exhibition or everybody knows they're going to get an opportunity to go into an open workshop and make a print. From day one, we closed that up. We, we created the Visiting Artist Program, which started local by inviting talented professional artists to come in and work with the neighborhood kids and, and the printers to produce quality limited edition prints. So that expansion has brought us this international diversity and this national diversity. I love everything that you've said so far. You're just like right on point with what I'm hoping we can talk about. But in terms of um, starting Brandywine in 1972, and I know that you mm. had this vision for an institution to have this commitment to diversity. And I wonder if you could speak to, you know, what did that kind of mean to you then? You know, were you just thinking, I'm going to get a bunch of people from different backgrounds in one place around art? Miranda, it means the same thing as it means today. Art doesn't have borders. Mm. Okay? Art results, change and evolution of society develops from dramatic things. Most, in most cases, history has been defined by wars. Okay, mm -hmm. the takeover of territories, the imposition of religion, the imposition of culture and language on other people, the conquerors, you know. So when we look at the world, we have to always look at it as connected. Digital media and, and, and communications has brought us close together. But so is the need for uh, food and raw materials and talent, intellectual talent. And America's been great at attracting that intellectual talent mm. because we're such an open society, of a democratic society where you can come with nothing and, and work hard and, and gain. You know, over succeeding generations, your legacy can be, which the work that you do can be demonstrated in enabling your kids to do better than you and keeping that going. So it's the same as it was then. Mm. Art, for me, is like a ministry. Everybody who's passionate about something, who's willing to commit to it and stay focused um, and have integrity, that's kind of like a ministry. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people fall short on one or more of those items. So if Brandywine is successful and I've had a, a substantial role in the success, then I feel good about what I've done and what I can leave behind because... I can't, you have to understand, coming out of the civil rights movement, I mean, getting basic right to education, basic right to vote, basic rights, I mean, what we're experiencing now with the killing of black people and the attacks on Asians and Latinos, this was going on all the time, but we weren't that sensitive to it or aware of it because we didn't have cell phone cameras, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I'm stressed out listening every day somebody getting killed just because of the color of their skin. But it happens in every country. I've, I, I said in the intro about me personally, I've spent my entire life in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. but I feel I'm a person of the world because I've had the opportunity to study in Europe. I've had the opportunity to travel extensively outside the United States and inside the United States. And when I pe meet people, it's generally through the arts. So, so art is the lens through which we try to bring people together, we try to educate them and get them to understand that if you check your DNA, if you do a test in your DNA, you'll find that we all have some mix of something else in us. There's no pure heritage, mm -hmm. you know, there's a mix. 
going again back to war and so forth. Um, so we all are mixed. We shouldn't hate each other. We shouldn't profile anybody. And we should love and we should be humane as possible. And we should care what happens. If I'm in Philly, I should care what happens in Los Angeles, as well as your entire land or Japan or Europe or Africa, because we're all part of this global society. It's just that digital media and communications has enabled us to see clearly for some of us that want to, some of us will never see it because they don't look for it, to be able to see how we're connected. And so uh, I have a friend who's passed now, John T. Scott, used to said, if art is good, it's universal. Hmm. You know, and, and I think the other way, to be universal, you will be good, hmm. you know, uh, if you can reflect those ideas. And so artists are always looking at uh, references, history, you know, Romare Bearden, you know, he, he did a lot of work with Greek mythology. He was an African-American collagist and printmaker from Harlem. And he was inspired by Greek mythology. He also was inspired by his uh, North Carolina surroundings and, uh, you know, uh, the interactions between blacks and whites in the South. So if I could, if I could ask you, what do you think it is about art or maybe even printmaking in particular that helps to kind of break down barriers or, or create a space that's really conducive for people from different backgrounds to come together and find understanding? I mean, I chose printmaking to be the medium for the art organization that we formed. People didn't care about what, what we did, just let's do something, right? But I said, no, we're going to do printmaking because printmaking is collaborative. It's an easy medium to teach and it has processes that you must follow. So there's a discipline, there's a craft mm. to it. You can learn, there's, there's math, there's some chemistry. It allows you to learn and, and, and get you out of the, the, the mentality that people less exposed, let's say, to the studio practice think of, they'll tell you in a minute, oh, you paint. If you say you're an artist, the first thing they'll say is, yeah. let me see your paintings. Can I see your paintings? Yep. They don't say, let me see your sculpture, <laughs> your ceramics, or your prints, right? No. Yeah. And uh, for, for those uninformed or ex underexposed, you need to explode that notion that art has many mediums, and sometimes the mediums mix. But printmaking, it's so conducive to teaching and building a community mm. because a teacher teaching students, again, you teach them process. You do this, 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 and this. Just like if you're writing something, there's editing and there's sentence structure, right? Printmaking has a structure that can be taught. It's a multiple so that what is finished as an addition, no matter how large or small, what's finished can be shared more broadly than the singular painting. And because you need a press and all these other things, it tends to be in a workshop setting. Even printmakers that have their own press and work out of their own studio will open time and space for their friends to come in and make prints. So it's very conducive to building community. And printmaking and the workshop, just a little bit of history, the WPA Works Progress Administration of the 30s coming out of the uh, federal art projects under the, the Roosevelt administration, designed to put people to work, but put them to productive, meaningful work. So they created these workshops, and printmaking was very much a prominent component of those workshops. And you had white artists, some of them were 
had come from Europe, escaped the problems in Europe from the First World War to the Second, and they would teach. They would teach printmaking. Hmm. And who would come into the workshop? People like Bob Blackburn, Mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of black artists that would have been marginalized or said, no, you can't come in here, right, because of segregation. But the workshops in the 30s were desegregated. So not only did the black artists or the young students come in there and, and learn how to make a print, they got to hear the stories of the white artists or the artists, let's say, outside their community. Whatever, wherever they came from, whatever the nationality or ethnicity, that desegregated environment prospered and re- the, the, the opportunities for the, for the black artists. And somebody like Bob Blackburn leaves that workshop, has a passion f- for the art of printmaking, and starts the Bob Blackburn printmaking workshop, which still exists today in New York City. Mm-hmm. And his example... Bob and I became great friends, but his example was the role model that I needed when I was thinking about what type of organization I would do. Because my first trip to his workshop in Lower Manhattan, I got to meet people from Venezuela, from Ireland, Scotland, uh, you name it. You know, throughout the Caribbean, all by himself was Jamaican heritage. And I got to meet these artists and I looked at that environment. I said, look at this. This guy's got a question about this process, he can just holler over to the room or take a few steps over and ask the guy who has more expertise or experience with that than he does. That's collaboration and that's building community. The other thing that would happen is that people would talk about exhibit opportunities and people would talk about job opportunities. Right. So, yeah. so now the way this played out for me, even before I met Bob after I graduated in 7071, Romas Vieslas, a Lithuanian master printmaker, was the one that really solidified my interest in printmaking. I had him sophomore year, then I had him junior year when I studied in Rome. So as far as the medium, he was the first role model and mentor that I could look at. And I, I really appreciated how he looked at me as a minority and encouraged me. There was something about his background that he experienced that he was passing it on, opportunity on, by, by encouraging me. Turns out, Romas Vieslas uh, came to the United States and went to Chicago, which is the largest Lithuanian population in the United States. And he painted some churches and things. And then, I guess the cold and lack of opportunity, he said, mm. I, if I'm going to make it in art, I need to go to New York City. He goes to New York City, and he doesn't know anybody, doesn't speak the language well, and he's walking the street, depressed. They said almost suicidal mm. because he had no family or anything here. And somebody said, oh, you should go. You, you, you're a printmaker. You should go to Bob Blackburn's workshop. He goes to Bob Blackburn's workshop, starts working out of that workshop. And an opportunity comes along where somebody is leaving their position at Tyler School of Art, Temple University in Philadelphia. And they say, and they say, Romas, hey, there's a job over in Philly. You want to go? He said, but I don't speak English well. They said, art is a universal language. Yeah. Going down to Philadelphia and get that job. He goes down to Philadelphia, gets the job, retires professor emeritus. He was my teacher. Yeah. So I was connected to Bob Blackburn even before I met him through Romas. See, so that's why I say, you know, art has no borders, Mm -hmm. you know, 
And, and, and when you can have a print workshop and you can build community where people not only get a chance to do what they want to do, but they get inspiration, they have conversations, they learn different things. Tracing all the way back to desegregation, I can imagine what that meant to those black artists yeah. who in their own community thought it was crazy to pursue an art career because they never saw work by black artists in the museums. Why would you pursue that career? So this is the narrative that I think comes about by being interested in passing something on and building something through art and specifically through the art of printmaking. Talking about how you actually went about kind of growing Brandywine, you know, you started out with just green print, um, but eventually you've transitioned to uh, doing offset litho as well. Can you just sort of speak to your experience over that time, adding more options. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brag a little bit here. Please. This, this is one thing. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't do what I do without the support of other people who have come along at strategic points. But I've always been strategic. Most founders live in the moment. I've never lived in the moment. And because I kept my uh, position as an educator, I believe strongly in family. I was blessed with a great supportive family. And I enjoyed pretty much everything that I was doing. I stayed focused, but I knew that time changes. One of the things people don't do is pay attention consistently to what's going on in the environment around them. I anticipated digital media. When the internet came out, I anticipated digital space as being a space. If you're gonna be relevant, you need to have some, some presence, some strong presence in that space. But the printmaking process was always evolving, and you go from letterpress in, in school to a, a manual etching press. They put a motor on that press. Printmaking has always been on the edge of technological development, mm -hmm. starting with the Gutenberg press, okay? So, and, and in just a little bit of history, Benjamin Franklin started the first print shop in the United States when they uh, came out of colonialism they, with a new government, he knew that we needed forms. Mm -hmm. So he started a print shop. I mean, just to look at a simple thing like yeah. that, you know, a new nation needs printed forms, right? Mm -hmm. So he started that. When we look at fine art printmaking, we look at the evolution of the presses, some becoming motorized, bigger, larger. We look at the paper, the manufacturing of paper. We look at... Uh, uh, even uh, uh, oil-based paints versus acrylic-based water-based uh, water paints for screen printing. We started with screen printing for the first 10 years because that's what we could afford. It was uh, practical, okay? But then we, as we developed it, we became frustrated in the inability to make precise registration and to hold a flat color over an extended period of time. There were so many variables in screen printing at the time, which was all manual, that we looked for another iteration. We looked for another thing to give us the visual effects that were becoming too hard. For example, if you wanted to print a small dot in the middle of a white space, mm. you practically had to clean the screen every three or four printings. And you could only get a, if you were doing halftone dots, you'd have to have a more coarse halftone image, otherwise the dots would be too small and it would fall through even the finest mesh. So we said we need to do planar graphics. So we then started, uh, John Dall and I, 
a master printer, Tamarin Train, first black and the third overall master printer certified by Tamarin Institute in the early 60s. Him and I, he, we, we started experimenting with cylinder offset presses. And the big advantage was uh, we could address all the issues we were having with screen printing as far as the effects, but also we could print them real quick. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that you turn that press on and you watch that roller go and the stream fed and the, the paper's popping yeah, out. And you're saying, wow, I just printed a hundred of one color in, in so many minutes, which would have taken me maybe four hours or so. We didn't get a press initially. We spent about two, three years using a commercial uh, lithographic print shop that was owned by the father of one of John Dow's students. His, his son went to art school. John had John Dow as a, as a teacher. And we convinced him to give us time uh, at the end of the day to come in and make some prints, do some examples, demonstrations, or whatever, explore how we can manipulate. And all that resulted in what kind of plates you use, the inks you use, because there was nothing to say that the inks, the offset inks were permanent enough that they would last that long, you know. So we did a lot of exploration, but finally we were able to get a large one-color press, and a few years later we got a two-color cylinder press. So we were rolling in the 80s and throughout the 90s. We were making editions of 100 prints. Some of the prints involved collage uh, because, um, for example, we had an Al Loving print where we made, uh, we printed on nine, nine different images. We might have printed 30, 50 sheets of paper, and then they were cut up and made into print collages. We, I mean, the, 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 the opportunity to have a lot of prints that you could cut and play around with, mm-hmm. fold, whatever, enabled us to do some really, I thought, innovative things uh, with artists that other shops weren't doing because it was just way too expensive. And then we never charged the artists. Once we got our tax exemption, we were able to fundraise consistently and we curated the visiting artists. So it wasn't a case where you had money, you could come in the brand and want to make a print. Uh, you had to be curated by the selection committee, in most cases, local curators and former visiting artists, and you paid for nothing. So that way, uh, by curating, we you know, had developed a very strong collection uh, over, over those years. Mm-hmm. But the offset was very instrumental. But then offset... The next iteration of printing became digital printing, and that was about reproduction. So we never went that route. We stayed away from it. I said, look, we got to make a connection between traditional printmaking and the new technologies that make image making advanced, you know, mm. makes it less difficult and opens up the range of effects and things that you can get but not to be reproductive. So we've never done anything that's reproductive. You bring us something reproductive, even though you've been given a residency, we tell you no. We want you to create something original using the idea that you have a master printer and whatever knowledge they can bring to to showing you. And then at a certain point, we have an extensive archives where if an artist has little experience, we take them into the archives and show them what other artists have produced, you know, to get to, to, to enrich their thinking. Yeah. I'm wondering if we could linger for a moment on the archive because it's 
an incredible resource that I didn't know of before I was introduced to Brandywine. Um, so just maybe speak to its breadth and depth and maybe even a couple of highlights or things that you're particularly proud of that are in there. Sure. Well, you know, sculptures think three-dimensional. So they would come in and maybe do a construction piece, you know, that has depth. Right. Uh, John Scott, a sculptor from New Orleans, uh, Sam Gilliam, a painter, uh, sculptor, uh, who loves printmaking, makes very innovative prints. We've worked with him since 1975. Uh, Martha Jackson Jarvis out of Washington. She's a ceramicist, but she makes like wall installations and things with shards and pieces of ceramic that she's made. Uh, she thinks very differently rather than object orientation. She's into painting and, and doing installations with ceramic. Uh, we did a print with her, which uh, was a construction piece out of about 12 printed sheets of paper that were cut up. Uh, we, we're almost finished, and we soon will receive a set of prints from Vanessa Green, uh, German, rather, from Pittsburgh, who proposed a project to do seven suits for seven days. So you have all these different types of items that I think are special and shows how innovative you can be within the context of printmaking. We also defy scale. Uh, the notion of a print has to be a certain size because the press is a certain size. You can hand print or you can tile print. You can make prints in sections and, and scale them up and make them quite large. So we have in the content description of the archives and the print collection, we have a very rich collection of African-American art we have, and, and we look at that as this diaspora too, the African diaspora. We have not too many, but some from Africa, some from Latin America. We have, I think, a really good representation of Japanese prints. Uh, for a few years in the late 80s, we worked with a collective of Japanese printmakers uh, who were coming to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and Itoshi Nagasato was the print teacher there and also a member of our advisory and artist selection committee and recommended all the artists that came to Penn uh, from Japan that they would make a print at Brandywine. We also have a Native American collection dating back to the, to the mid to late 80s with very prominent Native American contemporary artists in that group. We have, uh, for four years, we did an exchange with Wales in the UK, and we have some prints from, from Wales. We also did a four-year exchange in the 90s with Havana, Cuba, mm. and we have a rich Cuban collection. In fact, we did workshops there, then we sponsored um, at the, the experimental print workshop in um, the old city section of Havana, Cuba. We went there over a period of uh, annually four, four years to uh, support their efforts and invited uh, their master printer and several of their top artists to fill off you to make prints, lecture, and so forth. And uh, we did an exhibition for the Havana Biennial in 2000, and we donated everything from that exhibition to the Wilfredo Land Contemporary Arts Center. So the collection is really rich in diversity. It's intergenerational. We put no limits on the age. I think the oldest artist to make a print with us was 92, mm. and the youngest might have been 23, because we don't, we don't accept students. You have to 
at least be out of out of school, out of undergraduate school. Do you have a sense of just the sheer actual number of prints? And then also I'd love to plug that it's all available online as well for people to see. Well, I need to qualify that. It's not all available. That's oh, an okay. ongoing process because we continue to make, you know, have right. residencies. Yeah. But um, the numbers are, are around 1,400 images by about 430 or 35, somewhere in that range, artists. Now, that's the visiting artist collection. But we also have a permanent collection, which includes samples from the visiting artist series, mm -hmm. but also collections that have been acquired or donated to us. So we have uh, almost 200 prints from the Bob Blackburn collection. As I, as I said earlier, we were close friends. Yeah. And as part of his will, he you know, donated over 150, I think, prints to Brandywine, and we had been exchanging prints uh, in the years prior to his death. Uh, Sister Karen Bacalero, who is the founder of Self-Help Graphics Workshop in Los Angeles, which has been running since, I think, 1976. We were students in, in the studio in Rome in 1970. I was there. She was there, 69 to 70. And one night we were just standing by the press and talking about what our dreams were. Mm -hmm. And by that time, my dream was hopefully to do a workshop. And uh, we both realized that dream. So when she was still living, we made arrangements for us to, to receive 30 of her prints. And we would send 30 of our prints by our artists to her. So we had that. And then over the years, we continue to get artists from that community into the collection. We also have a collection from the Experimental Print Workshop in Cuba. We have work from the uh, Hatch Builds collection in New York. And we're getting ready to purchase some prints from the, I don't, I can't pronounce the name, but there's a, a group of Dominican artists in New York that have formed a print workshop. Mm. And we're connecting with them. So the permanent collection, and in addition, we, we have artists that have donated things to us. You know, they like the experience at Brandywine. They know we have an organized collection, and uh, they want to leave something behind as part of their own personal documentation. So we have a number of pieces that have been given us to artists, like John Dow, who I mentioned was my partner in developing the offset lithography program at Brandywine. He also was one of the original board members. So he's made donations of about 30 prints. So we have some artists that have made a number of donations based upon their love or their fondness for, for Brandywine and the experience that they had or for our mission, you know. So I think in total, when you added that, all that up, there's probably another 500 prints mm -hmm. that we have that, came, that were produced in another workshop. So we're approaching the 2,000 mark for individual images. Then what we did in connection with that, like you said, you, you didn't know about the collection. Well, you're not going to know unless we get it up on the Internet mm -hmm. and you have an opportunity to come to Philadelphia and visit. So as I said earlier about having some presence in the digital space was not only responding to where the field was going, where society's going, you know, and its preoccupation with smartphones and everything else, mm -hmm. um, you have to have it online. So groups our size don't get an opportunity 
in most cases to have the capacity to build a website and a database. You know, we looked at what uh, institutions like the University of Michigan did when they put their museum online, how much money they spent, how many staff they spent, how much time it took. Yeah. So we know we, we knew we couldn't do that. So we looked at our resources and we looked at, you know, people capacity and we decided we're going to do it with high school and college internships. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll have a core staff, most of which are consultants, and we'll build this website out. We finally decided on the name would be Artura um, because our website not only includes, as, as I say, we, we, it's a process. An institution with a lot of money could take one year. They just put the money out, they hire the people, they get it done. We do, we're doing it incrementally as we raise the funds, we train the people, we do the formatting, we, we have the consultants, and we build the, the website. So it's always going to be an ongoing kind of thing because in addition to that incremental development, you have increase in content, increase in image library, images, information. So all our exhibitions uh, and catalogs, uh, for those exhibitions, digitized, putting those up, you know, going back and getting 35 millimeter slides, you know, getting yeah. all that digitized. That's that's a massive project even with money. But we, we looked practically at that and said, well, if we got to do all this work, let's train somebody and give them the exposure in this area of work. Archive of collections management, digitalization of collections. So we incorporate that into our undergraduate high school, and now we have a cooperative uh, program with Drexel University in Philadelphia. Uh, so that's, that's the, the labor. But the technical and the, uh, the other components, the intellectual capacity, we have a great builder and brand uh, consultant for that. To answer your question about the importance of having a collection is that we, uh, at this moment, uh, we, we launched the website, Artur.org, in March of last year, 2020. But we had already been working on it for two years. We're now in our third year. When we started two years ago, we formed a national advisory of art historians, curators, art educators, and artists. Very diverse. Mm -hmm. It's everything we try to do. And... That membership now includes professors from Arizona State University, Rhode Island School of Design, University of Notre Dame, University of Delaware, University of Texas, uh, Scripps College in Los Angeles, uh, you know, a number of universities that have an art history, an art education, and a studio art program. They have a museum, so they can store. We, we built what we call satellite collections. Mm. So in addition to having an online repository that is free and you can visit it, all you need to do is find it, artour.org. If you want to download teacher guides and other materials, just register. But those partners, we now have 16 institutions that have curated by their curators collections of Brandywine visiting artists, prints. Yeah. Gives us not only geographical diversity in the services that we provide, 
geographically wide documentation of the artists that they select. And they do programming. They may do an exhibition. They may do a lecture. They may do a webinar that includes our work. You know, so we feel like we give our artists opportunities to create, to build their personal networks, to get their work out there, get it, give it exposure, preserve it. You know, so all these things are connected. And that's why I say I brag and I'll say, you know, mm-hmm. I these things don't happen by accidents. These things happen through strategic thinking, planning long-term, mid-term, and short-term as to what you can accomplish. But having the accomplishments push you to the next level where you can do more and more and more. And uh, there's always so, some, something more to do. And, I, you know, one thing about this interview, uh, you're, you're in Thailand, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think that we're such an advantage because the Internet and the translations that can happen, you know, almost automatically, uh, that the world is open. Yeah. You know, the world is open to to excellence and sharing and storytelling through the arts. Yeah. You know, and we 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 want to be a dominant part of that. And I think that the more we continue to to stay on point with quality and forbidities and integrity that we will eventually get the necessary financial resources to keep building and building and building. You know, yeah. uh, we got big goals. We're a relatively small organization, but we've got big goals, and we've just demonstrated with strategic thinking and, and necessary planning that things can be accomplished. Do you have any words of wisdom for maybe people who are hearing this interview and they've been thinking about trying to start something, trying to start a nonprofit in the arts that has that commitment to diversity that are thinking like, okay, I'm coming out of the other side of COVID. Like what would you say to them or even say to yourself 50 years ago? I would rather not advise somebody about mm. a commitment to diversity because if you got to talk about it, you don't have it. You got to ask yourself internally. I will not engage in conversations about how to increase diversity, equity, inclusion, because I mean, I'm not the problem. You know, mm-hmm. it's the people that exist in organizations, and if they truly believe, they need to speak up when an opportunity for a new position becomes available and think about who you're going to interview and not be the roommate you had from college or your friend yeah. that you know for 20 years and be honest about it. Because as long as you keep it closed network, you can always reference people in your network. But if you're serious, you won't have that closed network. It'll be what you practice, not what you talk about, but what you practice. So I don't want to talk about that, but I will talk about, you know, forming a nonprofit to develop and sustain a goal that you have. A nonprofit is a lot of responsibility, at least here in the United States is. There's rules, there's regulations. You got to have a board of directors and they got to have a role. Mm -hmm. And it's a hard thing building a board, a good functioning board, and having them believe in the mission that you might believe in, okay? There's things you can accomplish as an entrepreneur that that might be the better path than thinking I'm going to have an easy path by becoming a nonprofit and just asking people for money. Uh, you got to have leverage. You got to have positioning. And then the other problem with that is if that's your thinking, the easy route, then 
you're going to be susceptible that when the foundation says to you, I want to fund this, you'll write your proposal to that. Mm. Regardless of whether it aligns with your vision and mission, you want the money. And foundations, we call it responsive and directive funding. When I started, it was responsive. You tell the foundation what you need and why and how you're going to do it, and then they consider whether or not they want to support that. But as things evolve and the foundations get more professionalized and the field gets more standardized with protocols and, you know, all this, they sit there and they start making directive grants where they say, this is what we want to support. And if you don't fit into that box, Mm. they won't support you. So you got to be mindful. It's not to say that all those boxes don't have something to offer you. But you got to be mindful. See, I'm one of my greatest assets is I'm stubborn, <laughs> you know. And if my board said, you know, we should get this money, we should get that money. And I'm saying, but look what it ties us to. Mm. Do we want to go in that direction? Because they may do it for two years, three years, five years. Eventually, they're going to say, okay, we did it. Well, now we're going to go fund something else or somebody else. So you got to look at what is sustainable. Yeah. One of the advantages that Brandywine had for anybody that's doing a print workshop is a commitment to quality. If you're asking artists to come in in an open studio setting and pay rental fees, you'll find like Bob Blackburn learned, some will pay and some won't. Some will tell you they're going to pay and never do. Okay. So you're always trying to fill the gap because you got to cover the overhead and maintenance and all this other stuff. I saw that model as, as, as a defeated model for a place like Philadelphia that didn't have that many committed artists. But I did see the prints as a commodity, a product that could be sold if we did quality. And that was another reason why curating what you do. I think that having a commitment to a certain level of quality in what you do will bring value, and that value could be translated to earn income. A lot of groups, they rent spaces, you know. As soon as you can, buy your space, Mm. because real estate is finite. You may, like we did, you buy space in a wretched, downtrodden neighborhood, next thing you know it's being gentrified and you're sitting on some resources. Mm -hmm. That's why we invested in real estate in in a downtrodden neighborhood. You know, but we knew geographically we were close to City Hall, the core of the city. It was going to be built back up again. So you got to have patience. You know, don't look for it all to happen immediately, because the more quick it happens, the more inclined you are to think that's the way it is. It should always be that way. Uh You know, it's like the person that gets to 15 minutes of fame and then you don't hear from them no more. Art and careers should be planned and thoughtful, patient, and and the utmost is you as a person should practice the highest integrity possible so people always know what they get from you, what they can count on, and how you're going to respond. You know, your your integrity is, is the most important. So do it, if you do it as a nonprofit, Do it for the right reason. If not, if you're doing it with the goal that there will be a a benefit, a real benefit to you at the end, then just do it as an entrepreneur.
I, I just hope that everyone who's even thinking about starting a nonprofit was had a pen and paper ready or they can go back to it because that's just an, a really wonderful series of advice for sure. So thank you. We've talked a lot about the history of Brandywine. I'd love to talk about maybe the future. What do you have on the horizon that you're looking forward to? In terms of the studio, what happens in the studio, we want to get beyond innovative. We want to get inventive. We want to do things that were uh, created out of truly original ideas, not the inspiration of something you already saw, but something that's really unique and special. And I, I love when we get those kind of artists who challenge us, you know. And, and some of that comes from the diversity of the studio practice. Uh, working, we work, I think this year, past year, we worked with our first weaver. Uh, a guy that works on a loom and creates his art on a loom in, in Los Angeles. Getting people not that familiar with art who may bring a different approach or perspective to it and causes us to do something different, you know, something really unique. That will help brand Brandywine as a workshop different from other workshops who are just printing the, the limits of the own, of the artist's imagination. You know, let's say that, okay? Mm-hmm. So we hope that in the studio, we will bring, be branded as a place, a destination for people that are serious about printmaking that want to do something. The execution of that, we used to do everything in-house. I had a master printer for 27 years. He printed until he was 83 years old, and then he... He got ill and, and, and had to stop. But uh, we found that a lot of times people start out doing one thing and they really want to do their own thing. So how do you sustain the staff over a period of time when you develop, particularly if you get a staff person who has the skill set but knows how to develop a rapport with the artist? So in the future, staffing uh, became an issue. So what we did... Uh, we decided about three, four years ago that we would stop making Brandywine the studio for printing the editions, but we would outsource. And we've been outsourcing to a paper maker, a lithographer, and a woodcut master printers. And it's worked out well because not only do they have the responsibility for executing, they also are being grouped as a group, a cohort of people that will be willing to collaborate on one artist. So one part of the production gets done in one shop, another part gets done somewhere else. I think that kind of shop-to-shop collaboration is really good because mm. Philly is rich, you know, in, in printmaking departments at the local art colleges and, you know, just people graduating and setting up their own shops in Philadelphia. We're really rich in that aspect. So that takes advantage of the, the environment and location that we're in. The other piece is we're not necessarily an, an audience-based institution because, as most people know, you have a gallery exhibition. People come to the opening and that's it, unless you do a program, a lecture or whatever. So we've been doing a series called Artists in Conversation so that every artist that comes to make a print also must uh, give a lecture in the gallery. But now, because of COVID and everything moving to remote and explosion of Zoom use, 
we look at that as something that can be done hybrid. It can be done in the gallery, it can be recorded and posted online, or it can be done live as a webinar. So those are some options. Virtual exhibitions is another option where we're thinking, do it in the, in the gallery and do a virtual exhibition online where you can use AR and VR and really enhance it for those people that can't physically be there to, to look and enjoy it or, or enjoy the experience of other people's responses to it. Uh, so creating features that enhance the experience whether it's virtual or otherwise. And as you continue to develop, or as we would continue to develop these uh, digital media tools, uh, they could play right into the exhibition itself. You know, I always thought about having one exhibition that was all flat screens and showed the, the work of several artists and continue to grow and develop the Artur database. Those are, those are the, some of the things, but what you can think about today, if you don't, think about what's going on in the, we call it an environmental scan, okay? What is going on in the world that may affect what you do, okay? What goes on in the world? Uh, will you, will Brandywine have more opportunities to program internationally? What will be the hiccups in trying to do that? Mm -hmm. You know, that we want to start uh, uh, a satellite collection in Africa, perhaps West Africa and Senegal. Senegal uh, or South Africa, you know, uh, what would that mean for our programming if we could do something there that is broadcast here or we do something here that's broadcast there? We also would our tour, you know, the one of the key goals is that people know it exists as a resource and they use it. They use it in yeah. their classes because the curriculum specifies it. When digital media came along, a lot of the core standards for the states, each state has its core standards that teachers are supposed to abide by or include within their, their, their curriculum. And uh, when, when digital came out, it says visual and digital media. So to the extent possible, they want teachers to employ digital media in their teaching. In art, a simple thing would be to have a basic computer, computer program and do computer graphics. Over time, that evolved to doing video production and that kind of thing, and now with smartphones, TikTok, and all these other things, there's so many things that can be done on the cell phone. But the cell phone also gives people access to broadband and the worldwide internet that may not be affordable at home, but everybody now has a smartphone. So what can we do that fits this format of a smartphone and adds value to, uh, to the programs that Brandywine is doing? You know? So there's a, there's a lot of things, but I think for me personally, the most exciting thing is, is what inventive things can we do with artists using the developments in technology, paper, substrates, mm -hmm. things to print on. I'd like to see printmaking as public art. Mm. You know, we made a couple of proposals that we, to get printmakers together and, and cut Centrex, right? The, the introduction of Centrex into the market meant that you could cut it, print it, 
And then you could take the block and put it up outside. It was durable enough. It could mm. be part of a public outdoor installation. So as printmakers and sculptors come into the print world and make art, how can the people working in the print world go into their world? You know, And what, what does a print look like? To me, a print is something that you can make again. Yeah. Okay? It's... It's whether you want to or not, you have the capability to print one, two, three, or a hundred. But at Brandywine, the process of printmaking has to be in your project description for residency. You can't come and do uh, uh, an installation that doesn't involve printmaking. You can't do anything that doesn't involve printmaking. In fact, we named our gallery the Printed Image Gallery to push that whole idea. Yeah, beautiful. Well, we're just coming up on that hour recording mark. Thank you so much, Alan, for your stories and your time. Um, it's been really absolutely my pleasure. And I'll, I'll put links to Brandywine and definitely to the archive in the show notes for everyone. And yeah, I look forward to sharing the story and all of it. Yeah. Well, you, Miranda, you know the two links are artur.org and brandywineworkshopandarchives.org. One is the history and the story of Brandywine. The other is the, the database of the collection. And then we have a third one, which is brandywine.art, which is our e-commerce site. As I was mentioning, you know, having editions of prints, we pull aside a certain number for the uh, permanent collection. Of course, the artists get to keep half of whatever they sign. So it's a 50-50 split. But the, the, that allows us to have a sales inventory from which we sell prints. And that's one of the funding streams for Brandywine. Yes, I was definitely uh, doing some window shopping on that one while I was doing research. So I will definitely put the link to that one in as well. There's really beautiful works and a really wide range of prices too, which I always love to see as well. So you can... Um, I'll encourage everyone to take a look at that for sure. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Alan. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Always my pleasure to talk about Brandywine. And, and you you asked some really good questions that made me think. Uh, because I'm always planning and writing proposals. And, uh, you know, a lot of these things are things that you have to be able to think about and, and be ready to answer. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be John Renzella, a woodcut artist living just down the metaphorical road from PCL in Taiwan. We'll talk about comic books, adventures, and the end of the world. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.